Hi, I'm Alan Jones and I'm today's guest host for uh, this episode of Welcome to Day One, the podcast for Aussie founders, startups and the organisations that support Australian entrepreneurship. And my guest today is uh, Mick Lubinskis. Mick, uh, could you please introduce yourself? Hey Alan, Mick Lubinskis here. I work in climate technology. I help uh, people who are building climate technology companies grow them to scale. Um, I do that to uh, support the environment getting to a place of comfort. I, I run an ecosystem called Climate Salad uh, and I directly invest in climate tech companies. So Mick, you and I have known each other for centuries, decades at least. Um, do you remember what you were doing and what I was doing when we first met? I think we may have met way back in uh, Yahoo days. Uh, I was doing some work for, I was running marketing for Virgin Interactive and um, selling computer games back in the late 90s when I first started getting into doing HTML. And um, I think we were doing some ads on the games network uh, there at um, with Yahoo Australia. So um, may have met the first time there. But I think more importantly, we met when we were trying to build out, you were doing um, Blue Pulse. Mm. We were back when the industry could fit into one room. And, and it did. And it did. There used to be a thing called uh, Silicon Beach. Drinks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Silicon Beach drinks, Thursday nights. Yeah. And the uh, whole industry in the one room. Um, and, and it started to get a little bit crowded um, r- relatively early on, but that was one of the things that made it special, wasn't it? Exactly. Do you remember the the point at which you decided to make a transition? I mean, you were in a in, in a marketing role with a with a game software publisher. Do you remember the the decision point we decided it was time to to switch careers to startups? Yeah, so it was partly forced upon me by Virgin Interactive moved their office back to London, and they, they gave me six months' notice. So I just started helping out people building out websites, and uh, then so I started uh, my own business doing doing that. And then I started building, I built a platform and had a few people invest in it. And I was really, really, really naive. Like it's taken me a long, long time to learn the basics in, in technology. Um, it, so my path has been really wildly meandering. Um, but I've loved it. I, I love working in small, small businesses basically because you get to be a part of that uh, team of starting something new. Uh, you get to touch all parts of the business. Um, and it certainly um, appeals to my poor attention span. So... Um, and startups were, you know, you have a big mission, you work really, really hard to try to get something off the ground, you build a new product, get first customers and first revenue and grow these things. And it's wildly risky. And certainly I've, um, I've had, you know, a ton more failures and successes. Uh, but, you know, I, I love that part of the journey. I, I think the biggest change for me, the, the two big changes was going from kind of corporate to startups. And then the next one was going from a single startup into multiple startups and that was um again after working at tangler um phil mall and i just started helping out multiple companies and we kind of accidentally started polonizer before we go into polonizer tell us a a little bit about about what tangler was and 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 you know why did that start in sydney who started it how did you join yeah so um so i actually was around marketing for kazaa which was kind of a startup but kind of also a, a my, my my last real kind of pure marketing role now we're gonna to have to tell the kids at home what kazaa was <laughs> exactly <laughs> i mean they can look it up on wikipedia if we spell it for them but it's got way too many a's doesn't it way too many a's and and, and spelt in the old hack, hacker language but um yeah, because I was basically the, the follow-on from Napster. So Napster was allowed you to download music from servers and Kazaa got a bit clever and said we can download music from a distributed 
server. So basically the um, the index was distributed. So kind of a bit of a precursor to certainly to BitTorrent and certainly a little bit to blockchain and, and some of the crypto stuff. But um, uh, and but my, I was hired into Kazaa to turn it into basically kind of like Netflix and Spotify. The, the view was this peer-to-peer distribution of content was massively efficient. Can we use that as a new distribution network? So that was that was my vision. Sorry, that was the vision that I was hired in to do. Uh, we eventually end up stopped fighting that fight, um, and I went travelling around the world. I came back to Australia, wrote a book on my travels, started helping companies, and then um, I met Marty and the team from Tangler. They were growing a, a chat tool, so they were, they were trying to build basically a live chat tool. Um, this is back again pre pre Twitter, uh, pre even Facebook was only really Facebook was still only for universities at this point back in two thousand um, and five. So um, uh, Tangler, um, yeah, they asked me to come and join and help them build the product and and launch it into the US. Um, we did that for a year. Uh, we made a whole bunch of mistakes. This is kind of even pre pre lean and pre um, agile. Um, so we we spent a year and a million bucks launching a product and to find out that nobody wanted it. Um, uh, I think we had all the elements there, but it, you know we we didn't take an agile lean approach. We had an old stealth approach. So um, yeah, a lot of lessons learned and um, yeah, a, a great group of people. Uh, but um, yeah, it was um, we we just didn't didn't get the the approach right and didn't have the patience to go and build it out. And, and, and why do you think we used to do things um, in a non-lean way? Why, why did we take that waterfall approach back in the day? Was it because that was the only thing that anybody knew how to do or was it something that was forced upon us by the technologies that we used? What, what was that about, do you think? I think it all plays into it. Again, right back when we started, you literally had to you know, buy servers um, and every payment, everything you did, there was no SaaS tools. Like I'm starting a SaaS tool today, company today, you probably build by 20 products, which does half of the, the heavy lifting. You had to do every single thing yourself. Like we had to bring, build individual gateways into every single bank. All these things were really, really, really hard. So I think because of that, the, the technology costs were, were higher, it took longer. Um, so it was just harder to be lean and agile. Yeah, on the banking front, I remember there was a time when NAB was the only Australian bank that would offer um, any kind of services to Australian startups, you know, a, a, a gateway. And, and I think they used to make you put down maybe it was a quarter or a half a million dollar security deposit before they would even start to process credit card transactions. Am I remembering that right? It was something like that. Yeah, they were, they were for different levels and depending on what you wanted to do, but um, it was so manual and, and clumsy, um, but that was that were the foundation times, right? So it's, mm-hmm. you, it, was, it was almost impossible, but the technology was actually hard to build and then the technology got kind of taken off the table to be like, well, you can kind of build anything and then it, then it became, okay, if anyone can build anything, then it's, you've got to build something. It, it, the hard part is finding something that people want to build that other people can't build. So, yeah, the game really, really, really changed. It's, um, you know, it's hard. You've got to, and it's still changing. Like, it's still changing even faster. So I think it's it just says what you have to be completely and utterly uh, constantly keeping up to speed and learning new skills, which is um, mm. which is exciting but, but tough. And, um, I remember Mark Pesci and I were, were speaking once, and, and he was saying he, he thought one of the reasons why a waterfall was 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 the way forward back in those days was that you really only got one chance to to launch a product because 
um, you would then you know, launch was mainly about the marketing and advertising that you would do for it. And, and because most consumers, nobody had a smartphone and most consumers were really only on the internet maybe once a day. So you had to reach out to them to promote your brand and your, and your URL on the size of buses and then cinema ads and print ads, you know, like you used to, used to advertise startups in, in print, you know, in the AFR. Um, to try and get people to remember to, 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 oh yes, I must check, I must check that URL when I, when I get back to my computer tonight after work, you know. And so that that kind of it forced you in a way that you had to make the product as perfect as it could be because if the customer wasn't surprised and delighted with it the first time they used it, they would probably never come back. Yeah. Do you remember it that way? Absolutely. It was it was completely different. I mean, we you, we were still it, it's it's one of the things we're facing. I think with the climate at the moment is back then you, you it was on the premise of actually getting people online and to your site and liking the product and paying for it like there was just so many so many things and actually the early adopters there were so many challenges and the early adopters were really only the one percent like there, there wasn't just the money being spent on b2b SaaS on consumer e-commerce that we have now the comfort we have with the technology ta- has taken many many years like, like more than more than 20 years, of course, to get to this point, but it took at least 10 years to get to the base point of comfort. Um, and I, I'm, again, I'm asking myself the same questions around that with climate, even though there's a lot of people being positive about it, there's a lot of news, there's a lot of tech, is the world ready to, to, to comfortably spend money that way, whether it's government, consumers or, or, or business? I think learning those lessons, uh, I always think don't, don't just learn the, um, the individual lesson of, hey, it was hard to go and launch a product, you had to go and buy ads. Learn the principle that actually, what what do you have to do to make this work in the current environment, uh, and ask yourself that question. And that's um, you, you've always got to go back to first principles because everything changes constantly. Everything changes constantly. Um, and so the next big impact that you had with your co-founder Phil Mall on, on the Australian tech startup ecosystem was was Polonizer. Can you tell us a bit about the formation of of Pol- what Polonizer was and and why you chose to take that step next? Yes. So uh, again, as with a lot of things in my life, um, I accidentally find myself in them. After Tangler, Phil and I just started. Phil started helping companies out, doing CTO work. I started helping that with with marketing and and product work, and um, we started just referring customers to each other. And then it was like, you know what? There's a lot of there's a lot of these companies starting and trying to work out how to build tech products. So let's just do it together. And it was really just for the first six months it was just Phil and I basically working together and helping companies out. Um, and then one of the companies was basically said, well, you know, I can't, I mean, we, we were charging like $200 a day. Um, so really, really, really low rates. We, and we, we just really wanted to learn whatever we could about helping these companies. Uh, but we were working with a, a lot of them. And then, and then some of them were like, well, yeah, I can't even pay you $200 a day, but I'll, I'll pay you $100 a day and I'll give you some ESOP. And it's like, okay, um, sure. <laughs> Why not? It's only Sunday uh, to give up. So we just started basically then you know, building, built a, a portfolio of, of this, of a bit of equity. Um, and some of that started to grow. And, you know, back then it was really difficult. ESOPs in Australia were kind of taxed badly and uh, people didn't want to work for startups. It was too risky. Um, so, so we said, well, what if we can hire, um, what if we can hire engineers into Polonizer and then put them to work into startups, and then at least we've got some, um, you know, they'll they'll leave their safe job at the bank to come work for work for us and then go and work for startups. We're kind of a midway point. So, I think we we 
we had some good timing in terms of the shift towards growth in in startups. Where I think we were challenged was it was so hard to basically just keep the lights on. We had too an expensive core. You know, the accelerator model came sort of a few years after we got started, and and we were the first one of the first investors into Startmate and, and, and mentors there. But um, yeah, so I'm really excited about what Polonize was able to do in terms of the positive impact in the industry. But we we didn't get to really capture much value because we were we spent so much time learning about it and creating, investing in it, in the creation of it that we didn't actually invest in enough good companies. I, I will unfortunately always look at Polonizer as a, as massively underachieving because even though we had a couple of good companies come through it, you know, we were we were just a few years ahead. We should we should have got you know we should have lasted longer, done something different. We were a few years ahead of the big growth curve, and that's 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 hard. Like that's hard to look back on. Yeah. And and to uh, and to know that we worked hard and we were right there, but we we just were a bit early and had the model just a bit wrong. So although you'd do it differently if you could do it again, there were a couple of great successes that, that came out of Polonizer. Do you want to yeah. name drop a couple of people or a couple of companies? Yeah, I mean, Spreets was the big one. But again, Spreets, we built and sold it in 13 months and it was, a, it was more of a client business of Groupon. Uh, but it had a great team and a really hungry co-founder in Dean McAvoy who, uh, again, I, you know, I think for in our benefit, we backed Dean's previous startup, Booking Angel, and we supported him building out some tech and having a swing at it, um, and it didn't work out. And then we went again with him, and that, that speaks to the resilience required of participating in this space but and also the portfolio required. And fast forward to today, we are we were co-founders of LawPath um, with Dom and the team who are now just doing incredible work and growing great. So we, we had early successes and slow successes, and that's that's the challenge of, of startups. Is, um, and just, just to make sure you're not too modest about, about Spreets too, that was in 13 months, built and sold that business to Yahoo for $40 million, which at that time was an incredibly big amount of money. And still even these days to go from zero to, to selling a startup for 40 mil would be you know, yeah, a lot of pats on back for for that achievement. It was, and look, and the team Dean Eustace and uh, you know Phil was the, was a really big driver of that. But we had Fleur and Oliver from Polonizer and John Tyson, um, who were amazing team. You know, we had them ready. I, I remember someone afterwards saying, "You know, you just got lucky," and I and I was like, "You just completely and utterly disrespected that we backed Dean McAvoy a second time after a failure. That we had built this team up." Uh, two years in advance and, and train them and help them be in the position so we could be right there. We worked our butts off and got sales like within 30 days. How dare you actually? Sure, there was luck, but we did 25 things to to give ourselves the chance to be lucky. And Spritz was, was fantastic, but it was also such an outlier for us that it kind of hurt us in some ways in that we were unable to repeat that. We we wanted to build innovative technologies. We didn't want to do keep doing client work that can be profitable. And you know, we returned the first fund through through Spreets, which was great. But it's it's hard. You've got to find things you're really passionate about and, and find things that the, the world's prepared to pay you for. And finding that in an industry that's just forming in Australia is, is really, really hard. So I, I really appreciate, again, Fleur, Oliver, John Tyson, Dean, Eustace, and everyone involved in um, in Law Path and certainly Phil for, for backing that and pushing that really hard. But um, it was and people like Claire Hallam who behind the scenes did all the ops work and, and sold the business um, brilliantly. But um, it is, it's emotionally draining. What I, what I love about the being involved in multiple companies 
is like I, I try to put my heart into everything and it doesn't always work out. And in back then I was a bit more, a bit more resilient, irrepressible these days. I'm, I feel it's like putting my energies, energies in these, in these different things. You've got to be, um, you've got to be aware that you're, you're committing to it whole, wholeheartedly. So, um, sometimes it works out like spreets and sometimes it doesn't work out like, you know, we're bored, we sold to a public company it went up and down and now it's worth one cent. Now the whole company's were bored, but that's the thing I started from scratch and um, could have been great. Maybe should have done something different. It's, yeah, it's an emotional connection. Definitely an emotional connection. And and I think, you know, another important thing for people to understand if, if they want to understand what it was like in the very early days in Australia and the startup industry was that, you know, you said before that, that you kind of found yourself in the startup industry rather than really consciously choosing it. And you kind of were at a point where you're kind of unemployable on other things. It wasn't like you went into startups thinking, you know, yes, this is going to be a gold mine. This is going to be a money printing factory. You went into it going, shit, maybe this will bail me out. And I think many of us were in that position, right? So that first generation were, were misfits, people that, that weren't excelling in, in other careers and other professions at that time. And, and this was kind of our last-ditch attempt. Nobody thought, oh, yes, I'm going to have a career in the startup industry, and especially not that I'm going to make hundreds of millions of dollars. Now there is a bit of a career path. There is a big enough startup ecosystem that you can look forward to 10 or 20 years of working in, in five or six different startups and learning and growing with each experience. And that's a, that's a fantastic thing. But I think that is one of the different aspects of, of of the startup community today it, it is an industry it does exist yeah absolutely that's it's one of the things we wanted to go and create like it's uh, i'm sitting here at fish burners right now and back at, when we had those drinks at the grace hotel um and we were like man well what if we can imagine if we just had such a concentration um, of technology that you you walk around and you see um, what I see today. Like I saw, I walked past the immutable guys today in their t-shirts and hoodies, and I was like, man, startup shirt, startup shirt, startup shirt. Like that's 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 fantastic. I just love that there is that career. It is really hard. It goes back again to thinking, to finding what success is to you. And for, for some people, and the founders that I really really respect, it's they'll do the one thing for twenty years. Um, and they'll build it up slowly and slowly over time. Well, um, you know, Jin Dow from um, Happy Co, who just raised a massive round, when he came into Startman, I remember he was like, he's doing a checklist. Like he's out with his checklist. He's like, no, I'm, I'm going to build a big business around this. I'm going to, it's like, really? Wow. And he's done it. He's just done it for, what, seven, uh, what, must be it 10 years now, nine years? I don't know. But 10, certainly 10. I love that commitment, and but then I, I see people like you, you and I, who st- struggle to fit into a single company for a long period of time. We've done a lot. We've we've done seen probably a thousand term sheets, and we've helped companies a lot of ways. And you've got to find success again in what yourself and how what you want to get out of it. I love really, really helping people, and I that, I put that above commercial, and I've put that above commercial many, many times. And so I'm I'm now don't have a billion dollars in the bank. Not to say I would have if I took other paths, but maybe, but I love what I do, uh, and I'm very, very privileged to ha- even have the opportunity to try to do it. But totally unemployable. I, I read into Nick Gonios yesterday. We would always laugh about being totally unemployable, and we've got all these skills, and we want to help, and um, and that's okay. You've just got to go find a way to help, and if you can work that out long-term, have a, a long-term alignment with people, and that, that, that should be fine. So.
So I, I want to ask you a little more about Climate Cellar, the thing that you're working on now. And and and, uh, and I just want to ask you, you know, you, you, you've had some kind of come to Jesus moment there. You've had some kind of, of, of experience or decision that you made where you decided that saving the climate was was not only the most important thing for the world but but for you personally because you're now one of those annoying friends on Facebook that won't let any of us get away with um with our greenwashing <laughs> but what what's going on is that because you're a dad is that because you know you really want to save the world what's going on with climate salad yeah how did you make that decision it's a number of things partly it's like the world of technology had moved so far forward just doing core technology in SaaS to me wasn't like I, I looked and went, you know, I turned 47 last year. I want to work for another 20, 30 years. And if I do more SaaS marketplace apps, you know, I'll, I'll won't be able to get, a, get up and get excited every day. So I wanted to find something new. So I was kind of very, very open for that. And, and I'd always been a privately annoying um, environmentalist with a, with a keep cup very early and, uh, you know, going around the house, turning lights off and little, little, tiny things as a consumer. And then, um, I moved to the US about five years ago and one of the reasons to do that was that I was so deeply entrenched in the Australian tech industry that I was doing you know, 20 to 30, 15-minute calls with entrepreneurs each week for free and and I, I felt like I was just um, beholden to it and I was never going to be able to make a change. So what, one of the reasons to go was to put myself in a tougher, different environment um, and it was actually so tough that I, I was even more unemployable over in the US. But... Um, it just so happened that a certain person got elected president in the US and, and that person pulled out of the Paris Agreement. And um, my best mate in the world, Nathan Fabian, works for a company called PRI, which basically has spent 12 years trying to convince the, the all the biggest finances in the world that climate change is real and important. And as you do to mates, uh, we used to play competitive basketball together and I said to him, um, I sent him a note and said, ha-ha, your job just got harder. And he responded back and said, maybe it's time you got in the game. And that was like that one of the best um, touches I've ever seen. And um, and like you know, I was there in the US, so I was like, well, what the hell can I add to clean clean tech and sustainability? And um, so I, I went to the to the um, Berkeley University program called Cyclotron Road back then. I think it's got Activate now. And Singularity University had a had a sustainability program, and then Stanford and, and Y Combinator had a couple of sustainability companies. So I, I just went to those companies and said. I've got no idea what you do in terms of your tech, but you know I've done a bunch of stuff. Can I help? And I found out they had the same problems. That they just you know they need to build a team, build a product, go get customers, maybe raise capital. Uh, and then some of those people said, "Hey, yeah, go here's here's four or five books to go and read." So I just read a couple of books, and then you you can't unsee it once you start thinking about how many like billions and billions of coffee cups. The reason I scowl at people with, especially with espresso takeaway coffee cups, is like we we just are so oblivious to the the fact that you throw that away, and there's no place called away. It's a it's it's somewhere else. It just gets taken out of your comfortable life, and then you drive your car around and it pumps carbon into the air, and you you get food and you don't eat it. And again, I'm massively privileged in the world. I just throw it in the bin. Someone else will take it. Who cares? Like it's. But so once you start reading that and you look at all the David Attenborough documentaries, I did spend about three months just going deep in it, and I and I and it's scary. Like the climate anxiety is really real, and there's no guarantees. Hopefully, we save and it doesn't get too bad. But you combine that with being a dad of three kids, 
between 7 and 11 and of age. And I'm like, oh my goodness, they're not going to grow up. Like you want your kids to grow up and have a better environment than you had, a better world and better situation, right? And my three kids are going to grow up with more floods, more bushfires, more storms, rising waters. And it's no individual's fault, although definitely there's some people who could have helped avert it. But we've got to, we've got the opportunity to go and change it now. So yeah, like it's scary. Be careful doing it, but going to read books like Gates' book and John Dawes' new book, um, Size of Scale. I mean, they're, they're minor, but reading it and understanding what we've done to the environment, like all the growth, it feels free, right? You feel you throw it in the ocean. The ocean is so big. How could you possibly fill it up? And there's a billion people. Actually, one of the best ones I heard, because uh, I, I I, my dad's like, fill the fill the kettle up fully and boil it all the time. Just have it boiling. And I'm like, no, that's a waste. So, oh, come on. It's just such a tiny thing. And and someone quantified it and worked out that, like, we, the amount of boiling that happens every day is just incredible. Like, literally billions and billions of times water is boiled. Oh, wow. And, like, it just adds up. And you just feel like you're just, how can one person's, how can one person's contribution be so... Be, be matter and it, of course it doesn't it's in it's so small but there are billions of us now mm-hmm. there's a billion people doing a thousand things a day bad for the environment like that is a, that is a hundred trillion negative things a day mm-hmm. <laughs> like so yeah like and please like there yeah, is that's got to add up it's it does add up and the, the beauty of it is though we can change it by just changing the little things we do every day and it's not not that hard I'm not. I'm not some amazing hero. It's like carry a key card. Like just get the bus, walk a bit more. Like there is a. There's a. Um, there's the same trillion things can be turned into positives. I get it. That's that's really cool, Mick. Really cool. You, you've always been a goal guy. You know, I remember um, visiting your house at, at Woolloomooloo twenty years ago, and and you had a, a whiteboard up on the wall, and you and Karen <laughs> both had both had your goals and there were daily goals, there were weekly goals, then there were, you know, quarterly. And I think you had long-term goals as well with, with climate salad specifically, what's, what's probably your your biggest near-term goal and then what's your big, hairy, audacious goal for the future? Yeah, thank you. So it's hard again with the reflections on Polonizer and seeing some amazing venture funds out there. My reflections on that is don't is get the model, try to get the model right. So don't just, it's easy for me to start things and, and Climate Cell definitely just got started as a blog and has morphed into big potential impact on the ecosystem. But the um, you, I do really want to get the model right. And so I'm, I'm trying really, really hard to keep entrepreneurs building climate tech companies at the centre of Climate Salad so it doesn't pollute with, with, other, with other elements. And that's been that's been that's been great. Um, so the, the the short term and the long term goals are, are quite linked. And the, the the way that I believe that climate salad can have an impact on these companies is to help them get customers as a priority. So customers solve most of the problems with um, startups. If you get customers, you get revenue, you get proof points, you get momentum, you get more customers. And so that's our focus. So we've been working with great people like uh, Stefan Knight from AWS and other growth specialists. And it's like if we can if we can help these climate tech companies get someone help them get their business model right, get the new customers, and especially for Australian companies, get get customers in big markets. So Australia is a big country, but it's a small market. Not many companies can reach scale purely in Australia, though some can, especially in climate. 
So that's that's been the focus. So my my goal last year at South Start was to help a hundred climate tech companies over a year. Just help them somehow. That was was pretty vague. My my goal for the next year is to help a hundred climate tech companies get a, a new customer. So that's the goal, and the, the goal over between uh, for twenty thirty, my heritage's goal is to help a, a thousand climate tech companies. A hundred a year seems like we should be able to do it t- ten more over the next ten years. The other way we help is is also trying to help them get team members and and capital, but the the, the primary focus is is on is on customers. So, yeah, that's that's what I'm I'm working towards. I I, I do have a very very big um, follow on goal, which is climate salad needs to get to sustainability in financial sustainability because at the moment it's me working my butt off with amazing support from Shale, Connell and some advisors. So I'm trying to find partners and sponsors at the moment, people, companies who are prepared to help us grow climate salad Um, and governments, government grants I think should support as well. Um, But for members, it's $100 a year. We're trying to keep it very um, small but but committed. I'm I'm a member. You've, You've got me. Yay. Yay. Thanks, mate. Hey, um, so we're a little over ten AM, and I still actually have all of the, all of the questions still to ask you. <laughs> can, can we uh, extend our interview a little bit longer? Go for it, mate. Let's yeah, go for it. Absolutely. All right, cool. So um, now we're going to go through the questions that we ask every one of our guests. What do you see as the biggest gaps in the startup ecosystem in Australia today? The biggest gaps in Australian startup ecosystem, I still think, is actually is the export focus. So we we are we still. You solve problems around you, and the problem with Australia again is that that often leads to a small market. I, I look at New Zealand, and and they very rarely build for New Zealand. They they're much more likely to be global because they're kind of forced to. Whereas Australia, we don't have great exporting skills. So I think that's the that's probably the, the biggest unlock. Um, and a combined to that is actually we produce some amazing IP and research and technology, uh, but we 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 are not. Uh, commercially driven to to build that into a business. They're the two elements that I think we'd, we'd love to keep uh, developing. Do you have thoughts on, on how we might be able to fix that or, or, or improve? <laughs> it looked much harder in COVID. The way we did it with Polonizer, Murudi and Startmate was just get people on planes. Like you just have to – the amount of times I've taken people massively reluctantly to the US and then have them two weeks later be like, oh, my goodness – why didn't I come here earlier? So that is that is harder to do without being able to, you know, I haven't been to the US for for two years now, and um, that's that's negative, right? Because you it, it helps you go and get to that much significantly bigger market. And for climate tech, Europe is massive because it's significantly more advanced. Asia Asia is big opportunity for Australia given the proximity, but get, getting on a plane I think solves solves a big part of that. And and there, there are Australian programs federal and state level, which you can offset your, your costs. But again, if you can't just get on a plane because of COVID, that doesn't really help that. Uh, but what we do have now, I think, to your other point, is we have people who've done it. We've had tons of people, whether it's through Atlassian, Canva, Airwallex and others who are um, have, have built products in Australia and sold them internationally. So we do now have more than 100 people who've, who've been through that process. So that is definitely um, positive. On, on the commercialization side, it's, it's the pressure. Like how do we create pressure on, uh, on the ecosystem so that there's a burning platform to commercialize the research? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so then uh, you touched before on, on you think that, that Australia is a, a great market for R&D. What else do you think uh, as an ecosystem that, that we do well, that we do differently, that we do better than other markets? 
Certainly one of the good ones is uh, because of lack of capital, we build businesses that survive downturns and we, we, we build organic growth businesses. In the, in the Valley, it's it's so much easier to raise so much more money that it's just um, they can get addicted to capital. So we, I think building, um, we do that well, is just build fundamentally good businesses that grow slowly over time. Mm-hmm. And if we can keep that, I think that's that's quite good. So I think that's quite strong. I think we, we when we get it right in terms of the combination, we have we have strong engineering and capabilities, and when that when that does come packaged with really good uh, commercial entrepreneurship, and, you know, and that's what you get from someone like Jindal at um, Happy Co. and uh, the Christian from Sakona and uh, Alex and Rory from Cecil. But I think that is that is a great fit. So um, yeah, there's definitely those those skills. Um, yeah, we, if if we have uh, our humility and hustle together, that's a great combo. Cool. So uh, next is the uh, A16Z question, um, the one that they like to ask people that when they're interviewing them for for roles at, at the fund. Do you have uh, you know? Tell me one unpopular opinion you have about the startup ecosystem. Something that you believe about the Australian startup ecosystem that that is is not commonly held that other people would disagree with. Oh, about the Australian startup ecosystem. Yeah, I've been think, trying to think about this one. I, I'm a still, uh, I'm a big believer in concentration. I think Australia will not progress internationally on the list of top countries until one city wins over other cities. I have wonderful friends and colleagues, and there's amazing businesses that have come out of Brisbane, Hobart, Perth, Adelaide, Melbourne, Sydney, yeah. and Newcastle, Wollongong, etc. But until one city becomes massively dominant, uh, I think we will still be fragmented. Mm, okay, well, I'm, I'm rooting for Hobart and my very good friends down at Biteable. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I'd be totally in for Hobart and, and number one. Um, number, the second point is with climate change, it's going to be uh, much warmer and nicer down in Hobart. So, yeah, that's a, that's a good call. I'm just, look, I live in Sydney and Sydney has some momentum, but I, I don't. I don't care where it is. I'll, I'll move. I want to move there, right? I want the pressure to be like, I should move there because that's where the that's where the um, that's where it's, it's happening. Yeah. Um, but at the moment, like, and again, I don't know. Combined with the, I know Nikki Shivak from Blackbird has a. You can bring, start the menu, and I think that's true. Uh, but I think there are benefits of a strong village, and we we definitely don't have that yet. Yeah, there's, there's the people who go to Fishburners every day and flip open their laptop and work at their laptop and then go home. And then there are the other people who go along to all the meetups, Friday night pitch events, hang out in the in, in the kitchen and meet new people. And and as those people have less trouble, you know, finding team members, finding co-founders, right? It, it really helps to be a village sometimes. I think it does. And there's, there's no doubt there's a bunch of amazing entrepreneurs who've sat in garages and never met anybody and just built a good company. Um, but I, I think the village does help with various stages and for a number of people. And maybe it's just because I'm a massive extrovert, but um, yeah. So um, do you think that that problem, we, we get back to solving the problem when when, when uh, lockdown is over, when, when the pandemic's gone away, I guess, we, we can set that on the long-term goals. Um, in, in the meantime, is there something that we could be doing better as a, as a community? Um, like where it's come from, I'm still blown away. Like I really, really wanted to be blown away when I came back from the US and Australia, and I, and I was like just um, it's it's a it's a tiny little thing, but walking past um, and seeing startup T-shirts just constantly, and not just Atlassian Canva. Um, you know, I think that's um, that's fantastic. I think what do we need to be doing? I mean, I'd love to find a way to get more people investing in startups, and the, um, the sophisticated investor rules make that hard. 
um, a big shout out to Cheryl Mack uh, for Aussie Angels, who I think is doing an amazing job of bringing in a, a new group of, of investors. And um, that is uh, something, and I know she's working with a number of people on trying to expand it out. And that's, you know, it's just crazy to think that we, what do we spend a billion dollars on the Melbourne Cup? But you can't invest into a into a climate tech startup that you believe in. So yeah, yeah, absolutely agree there. A hard yes from me. So let's finish up with with the advice question. So if a new wannabe founder or entrepreneur comes to you, what's the most important piece of advice that you want to make sure you give every single person that you meet the first time you meet them that might help increase their chances of success? So I'm I'm a big believer in like I. I'm well known, but I'm certainly not a massive success. Um, I've done a lot of things. The thing I try to get all mentors to do in all programs and through like climate salad is to ask questions rather than give advice. And and so I'd, I'll flip that around and say, what what question would I, do I ask people? And and by far the biggest one is, are you are you committed to solving this problem? You know, there are there are startup programs and hackathons where you might meet a team and have an idea, and on Sunday you love, you know you fall in love and want to start a startup, but are you prepared to do 10 years to solve this? And, w- and would you solve it even if it meant no financial return? That's the biggest thing I, I think is the, is the long-term commitment. Like are you – it's one of the things I really got with um, the Ripe Robotics team that I invested in last year. Like they – you know, someone's like, why don't you raise more money? It's like we don't need more money. We're going to do it slower. We're just going to do this slowly and I don't care if it takes 10 years. We're going to solve this problem. Like we're going to help the world – harvest fruit better it's like they're just so committed to solving it that i believe they're gonna get through it so that, that that's my main thing because once once you have that once you have that commitment you'll you'll get through almost anything so that that's the first one very cool thank you mick and one more question it's just to, to wrap up what new developments in the in the startup industry that are you most excited about that might be a technology or a trend or a sector well certainly climate like i, I think um the the um, climate tech as a, as a sector itself, combining clean tech, sustainability, circular economy, energy resources, materials, like the, the fact that we now have capital coming into this space, we have, a ma- we have this amazing opportunity to turn this IP and, and resources into just into actual real, real businesses is, um, is incredible. Um, and such a broad range. So, you know, Olympia from GoTerra, Yasmin from World's Biggest Garage Sale, uh, again, Alex and Rory from Cecil and, and others. They're just. This is really exciting because it's no longer about philanthropy and environmentalist and and save the whales. It's actually good business, which I think is is really really important. Like it has to fit into the current model, otherwise we just won't solve it. So that is is really exciting. But last year was I, I think we had good momentum, but it was just a formation year. We, I think what we really need to see this year is. Uh, is, is significant progress at all levels. We need R&D turned into products. We need products turned into customers, customers getting to scale. You know, companies like uh, V2 and Vow and uh, Fable, like we need those foods to be normal and just get to get to scale. So, so excited uh, about where climate tech is going to go this year. Very cool. Um, everyone, listeners um, at home or on your walk or your run, I hope this has been an inspiring conversation today. I've been your guest host, Alan Jones, and I've been talking today with Mick Lebinskis, um, startup industry stalwart there from the very beginning of the startup industry, um, happened to find himself in startups and, and made a career and made a huge difference in the Australian startup ecosystem. You can find out more from him at Climate Salad. Mick, what's the URL again? 
Yeah, climatesalad.com. Um, drop in, become a member, help help climate tech companies grow. And um, Alan, thanks for your work, mate. Love to chat to you. I hope you enjoyed that interview. More interviews are on the way. Follow the podcast wherever you're listening right now. Stay tuned for more interviews with many, many more amazing people from the Australian startup ecosystem. Thanks for listening and see you next time.